Welcome to Feminist Erotica, a podcast from Rebellious Magazine for Women. Join Jera, Karen, and Princess for stimulating interviews that explore feminist representations of desire, as well as short and sweet erotic snippets read by the authors themselves. This episode is sponsored by Just the Tip, Rebellious Magazine's inclusive sex and relationship advice column where you'll find interviews with sexuality researchers and educators, as well as compassionate responses to anonymous questions. Check it out at rebelliousmagazine.com slash just dash the dash tip. Hey, I'm Jara, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. In this episode, you'll hear excerpts from three stories found in the Best Lesbian Erotica of the Year Anthology, Volume 5, as well as a bonus story by the anthology editor, Sinclair Sexsmith. These readings were part of a live-streamed happy hour. Diving in, first up we have Rain de Grey, reading from her story, The Summer of Strap-Ons and Sodomy. Rain is a writer, advice columnist, podcaster, and educator that has been performing and teaching for the past decade. Her work has taken her from kink.com to Harvard University and many places in between. Demystified sex education is one of her greatest passions. For more information, go to raindegray.com. We first met over a mutual love of both strap-on sex and getting paid for it. Getting paid to do what you love feels like winning the lottery. It tastes delicious. To meet someone in the course of doing what you love and fall for them hard, it doesn't get much better than that. There is someone I want you to meet, one of my favorite clients said to me after a vigorous session. We were laying in a blissful puddle of spent endorphins, and he was staring up at the ceiling with a purposeful look in his face. Her name is Kara. You would love her. I know you two would definitely get along. Sure thing, I replied, happy to do so. I've always been open-minded and was curious what would inspire him to make such a strong statement. What was the worst that he could do? What was the worst that could happen? He was wrong? What if he was right? A small, hopeful animal poked its head out in the landscape of my mind. I was single and over it. Pro-dom work only checks so many boxes. There was space in my life for something new and exciting. Maybe that thing was named Kara. Arrangements were made and the three of us set up to meet for a co-topping strap-on session about a week later. I've always enjoyed co-topping sessions. The energy and flow can be such a rewarding headspace if done properly. There is a fluid, unspoken language if the right groove is hit, the language of flesh and desire and power. The week passed quickly, but not quickly enough. I had to admit I was counting down the days. The moment I saw her, I could tell that she was a powerful package of sexuality contained in a tiny five foot two frame. Her body was exceptionally toned. Years of classical ballet training had shaped it into a lean weapon. Her waist was so small, I could almost encircle it with my big hands. Uh, I'm gonna, (laughs) do I have to talk about her butt? (laughs) She had almost no breast to speak of, any natural tendency towards them combated by extensive exercise. Her brown eyes looked slightly mischievous and up to no good. All of this was accented by her dance-trained butt, which jutted out enthusiastically. 
I craved to use it as a pillow to rest my head on at night. Someone that lean had no right to have that glorious of a butt. Not that I was complaining. The strap-on session was a blur of sex and exhilaration. We hit it off so well that we basically ignored the man that brought us together. He was the meat in a sandwich of paid-for bread slices that were so busy being dazzled with each other that the meat went unloved. As we Eiffel towered over him on both ends, we made flirty faces across his bent over body. He was distracted and didn't notice our building sexual tension, or if he did, perhaps he thought he was the source. He wasn't. At the end of the session, Kara and I had exchanged phone numbers and made plans for a date. We tumbled headlong into a relationship. It was natural and fluid, as effortless as breathing. Um, our nights together were often spent with me watching her dance at Divas. Her fluid sexuality, like mine, would bleed over the edges and make messy watercolors. Everything about her was fascinating to me, and somehow, unbelievably, she was mine. After an evening of built-up sexual tension, watching her gyrate against hungry customers as they stuffed wads of cash into her lingerie, the hope of sharing just a few brief moments of fantasy with her, I would take her home and ass-fuck her in her tiny bedroom, a closet under the stairs of her parents' home. I would hold her compact body face down and ass up, my clip fully engorged against the base of my strap-on, and feel the ripples of bliss move through me as I entered her from behind, pressing her head deeply into the pillows with one hand, the other holding her back down, listening to the squeals of pleasure bubbling up as we both rode that wave. It was an endless marvel to me, her raw and honest appetite. No matter what I dished out, she took it and asked for more. That perfect ass was like a magnet to me. I simply could not get enough of it. She would have to bite down on the pillows so her moans would not drift up through the old wooden floorboards and disturb her parents. She was a splayed out butterfly pinned down as she writhed in her bedsheets, her long black hair trailing across the pillows. She was all ass and hair and endless desire. Lucky, lucky me. Her flesh felt like a perfect fit against mine. Next up is Mary P. Burns, a longtime resident of New York City. She received a Master of Fine Arts in Playwriting from Columbia University in 1991, after which the Muses departed for points unknown, leaving no forwarding address, so she carved out a career as an executive assistant. When happenstance left her with the opportunity for some major time off, she sharpened her pencils and hoped for the best. Luckily, the Muses returned and she hasn't stopped writing since. Her first novel, Forging a Desire Line, was published by Bold Stroke Books in May of 2020. You can reach her at maryburns11c at gmail.com. I'm sitting in an intimate bar on First Avenue near 74th Street, one table away from a crackling fire and one frosted French window away from the bitter cold of a January night. The perfect distance for warmth and reminiscence. A Japanese single malt scotch occupies the coaster in front of me. They've become very adept, the Japanese, at making the smoky, silky amber liquid that goes down like honey and then kicks you back, leaving an afterburn in your throat that tastes of charred logs on a brazier. She always comes to mind in moments like this, sultry, smoky, silky, 
skin so smooth everywhere, a voice like honey, and her scent like burning maple leaves in the fall. Bonfire, her perfume was called. The bottled essence of autumn on fire in the Northeast, she'd said, and it was. Okay, the narrator then flashes back to meeting Pamela for the first time 30 years earlier. We met the winter I landed a coveted in-house temp position at one of the major ad agencies in the city. It was a gig I desperately needed so I could support myself while I got my MBA. Since I hardly looked the part though, I wasn't sure I'd get the job. In those days, they wanted corporate polish. I was tall and gangly, wore a modified marine buzz cut and three-piece suits from Joseph A. Bank that I could only afford when they had sales and wingtips, of course. But all Kathy Williams in HR saw when she interviewed me was 120 words per minute, dictation, the dying art of shorthand, French, Spanish, and not opposed to running personal errands. I'd been there just nine months when Kathy needed a top-notch assistant for the executive floor and found she didn't have anyone on the current staff to turn to except for me. I was aware those assignments went to the straight girls who looked like Perry Mason's assistant, Della Street, who fit in. Kathy didn't ask me to change my appearance. She simply told me to quietly go above and beyond my natural abilities to, and shine, find a way to, to bond with both the executives and their assistants, become part of the team, because I'd be there for three months working for the one female executive on the floor. The narrator's then sent to Pamela's office and finds her on a phone call. When she hung up, I knocked and walked in. She stood, came out from behind her desk, hand extended. Her regal beauty stole the breath I would have used to say my name. My eyes took in every inch of her without ever leaving her face until her hand was in mine and I looked down at the long delicate fingers, the perfectly manicured nails and blushed. The navy stilettos matched her suit. Her toned figure statuesque, she was as tall as me. And when I looked back into those blue and diamond eyes, I saw a gorgeous woman of a certain age in that last blaze of mature beauty before time would rob her of everything leaving her invisible to the world. And I fell in love. A strand of pearls rested between the hollow of her neck and her cleavage, and I desperately wanted to kiss each bead. Instead, I took the index card from her as she spoke and perused the list of names on both sides, people she needed to talk to today on one side, people she'd be unavailable at the moment for on the other side. The narrator then goes on to describe the professional relationship she builds with Pamela, even as she serves her every office need. And then comes a change in that relationship. A few days later, Pamela took me to lunch. She just found out her assistant had decided not to return after maternity leave. Would you stay with me, she asked. I know you're in school. We can keep the arrangement exactly as it is, except I've asked HR for a better salary. May I think about it? Of course, she replied. On the way back to the office, we stopped in a chocolate shop so she could get Christmas gifts for the assistants. As the counter girl wrapped the packages, she turned to me and straightened my tie. Don't think too long, I really want you. Throughout that winter and spring, she took me to lunch once a week to thank me, she said, for all my hard work. We roamed further and further from the neighborhood of the office in search of ever new places, stopping in a store or boutique on the way back to look at things, finding ways to touch each other, a hand, a wrist, the small of a back, as we showed each other scarves or ties or pieces of jewelry we admired. One day we passed a specialty shaving shop and she turned right around and went in, asked to see the razor that would give the closest shave. The gentleman behind the counter brought out two different electric shavers. No, for women. He unlocked a case beneath the counter and set a tray of handheld razors in front of her. 
I watched Pamela study them, pick one up, run her thumb over the blades. I wandered around the store as she looked at those. As much as I loved watching her hands touch anything, I was intrigued with this shop and wanted to know what else it carried. I spotted a small can of shaving cream called Captain's Choice 45, a cherry almond blend, opened it to sniff, and brought it up to the counter. Pamela picked it up and examined it, looked at me. I love that smell, I said. It's like cherry pie. She added it to her growing pile of purchases. Oh no, I can buy my own. Then go get another for me. Without thinking of the implications, I did. June Amelia Rose is an anarchist leather dyke fiction writer and submissive transsexual femme living in Brooklyn. Her stories Bootlicker and Porn Girl the Illustrious were self-released as zines to cult praise. Her writing has also been featured in Fist, a zine for leather dykes. She has edited four books so far ranging from memoirs about underground punk music to novels about lesbian teenage sexuality. She is currently at work on her first novel as well as a collection of essays. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at anarcho underscore slut for more writing and depravity. My mistress wasn't letting me come for a whole week. She had locked me in chastity many times before. I was the one who had first asked her to. I craved the way she'd take control of my orgasms, deal them out to me, make me beg, deny them just when she felt like fucking with me because watching me squirm as I was frustrated and not allowed to come turned her on so much. But it was always for a day or two. This would be the first time I was locked up for an extended period of time. My clit belonged to her. The small pink metal cage would stay with me at work, through all my dinners and dates with other partners, while I slept and showered. The excitement was unbearable and heavenly. I spent my days turned on from how hot it was to be locked up for so long, frustrated it wasn't sooner, but knowing it was for my own good. I couldn't wait. I anticipated what she had prepared for me, what lovely prize awaited my greedy little submissive heart. And finally, day seven came. My body has an addiction to the swings of tumultuous emotions. You were born with rivers of fire inside you, my mother said to me once, during a crying fit when I was trying to bite my own tongue out of my mouth. You have the strength and the sadness to be calm. You have the drive to accomplish anything. She didn't know then how apt those words would become on the eve of my diagnosis 20 years later, when the key clicked into the lock as my therapist spoke the litany to me in a divine tongue. Bipolar one with features of mixed episodes, rapid cycling and melancholia. They unfurled like the secrets of my family's jewelry chest, a genetically rich inheritance of chemical imbalance cooked up in a pressure cooker of psychological trauma. Torrent and tumult and calm drops on a drooping dying lotus flower. That was how I lived for most of my life. I would stir and then still, I would start and then freeze. Emotions were like another language to me. I was a foreigner to emotional stability. You can only live for so many years with a deficiency in relating to other people until other people's lives start to blow up too. I think I lost every friend and every relationship I've ever had, all to a mood spoken in words I didn't understand. At a certain point, a change needs to come. The way out is through. When we first met in the rooms, I knew she had come from where I had. Alcoholics Anonymous is just like that. 
instantly you just have a connection with people because they think like you do. They've been through what you have. They've seen the bottoms of the gutters and sewers you've spent your years trying to get out of. Even if you have nothing in common socially, no hobbies, a completely different worldview, none of it matters in the rooms. The fellowship of it all smooths over everything. In those first days, I tried to embrace the hug of the chalky decaf coffee. I always had to take it black because most alcoholics in the rooms won't think ahead to stock soy milk. Hi, I'm Melody. I'm an alcoholic, I would say. My voice flat and nervous and wanting. There's a certain ego death that comes with announcing your ailments to the other members of your special class. The meeting that she sat next to me, the trans women's meeting over on the church on Nostrand and Willoughby, I knew I'd seen her before. The dom who had said everything, the dom who everyone said was too much chaotic energy. Her hair was a searing blonde. Sage used to be a bassist in a punk band nobody's ever heard of. And she wrote aid for a few band years for a punk band everyone has heard of. During her share in her meeting that night, she mentioned bipolar disorder and punk rock. I went up to her afterwards. Hey, can I have your number? I asked her. I'm normally not forward about that kind of thing, but the moment was too good to be passed up. It needed to be seized. Sure, she said as she typed her number into my phone. I just want you to know it's kind of a more than a fellowship thing. Oh, I think I've seen you around the scene before, she said, her face puzzling out a plan. Never knew you were one of us. She looked down at my faux, faux leather bondage cuff. I can think of some uses for you. I was in charge of cleaning her house, doing her laundry, washing her lingerie, all these chores that she delegated so matter of fact. After so many years of alcoholism, poisoning a self I didn't care about, it was helpful to throw myself into caring for someone else. My hands worked for her with so much intention. I got pleasure and guidance out of serving her. One time while she was beating me with her custom wooden pink mistress paddle with spikes on one end, she barked at me. You love serving me, don't you? Yes, mistress, I love to serve. I love following your orders. Whack, you already do anything I want she said, because I own you. Yes, mistress. She turned the paddle on its side and dug the edge into the beginnings of a purple bruise, already beginning to break across my ass like sunlight. <sighs> I cried. You do it because it pleases me, don't you? She said. Yes, mistress. I cried out. Nothing pleases me more. She flipped the paddle over to the spike side, a masochistic reward for answering so well. With a stroke of love, she swiped the paddle against me, my ass splattering a rain of blood across the wall and down her face. Thank God I just got tested, I thought to myself. She licked a drip of blood off her upper lip. You're welcome. Our last excerpt comes from Sinclair Sexsmith. After Ellen.com called them the best known butch erotica writer whose kinky groundbreaking stories have turned on countless queer women and who is in all the books, wins all the awards, speaks at all the panels and readings, knows all the stuff, and writes for all the places, according to Autostraddle. Their short story collection, Sweet and Rough, Queer Kink Erotica, was a 2016 finalist for the Lambda Literary Award, and they are currently the editor of the Best Lesbian Erotica series. You can find more of their work and the rest of the story at sugarbutch.net. 
By the time I have four fingers inside my boy's front hole, he is begging for something in his mouth. Please, please, he whispers. His stomach is all tight and crunched, his mouth is open, and he's grasping everywhere with his hands, the sheets, the pillows, me. I want, I want, I wait, what do you want? I already know, but, but I love when he squirms. Your dick in my mouth, something, anything. I still have all my clothes on. I'm not really about to take my fingers out of him, wrestle my jeans off and reposition over his face just so he can have something in his mouth. Even though I really do love how he sucks me off. This boy, my boy, nine years we've been together and he is as cock hungry as ever. I have a healthy collection of a dozen different sizes, most of them in that soft silicone that the good toy stores are carrying these days. I love the pressure of a strap-on in his mouth and his cunt. Hard to know if I like that feeling or feeling his lips and tongues on, tongue on my actual flesh more. Good boy, I say, reaching and adjusting so I can slide two fingers from my other hand into his mouth. It's awkward and I'm poorly balanced using a lot of strength to keep myself from falling over. How about, wait, I slide my fingers out of his mouth and he whimpers. He's still breathing hard, my fingers still inside his cunt, but gentle and still while I move around and try to find the right toy. This, I say, and hand him the gag, shaped like the head of a dick, just a little more elongated than a usual ball gag. Yes, please. He wipes at it with the sheet, spits on it, wipes again, and puts it in his mouth. We store the toys clean, but they inevitably get some dust or cat hair on them. Right away, he lies back on the bed, getting himself resettled, refocused. He's beautiful, handsome, gorgeous, curves in some places, but mostly muscle and density, strength, and stamina. He doesn't bother to fasten the gag behind his head, just tucks in the ends and holds it in. It's not like he doesn't want it there. He arches his back and neck, moaning behind the gag. I get myself situated between his legs again, and he tightens his cunt around my fingers, pulsing contractions like a storm, getting closer, getting closer. I brush my hands over his thighs lightly, gently, slowly, just for that extra sensation, and because his thighs are my favorite, thick enough to grab a handful, to bite, to slap, to wrap around me. It's the part of him I watch. I still grant glances when he moves. I salivate, I salivate when I think of grabbing him. He pulls my fingers into him with his muscles and inside of him opens. Suddenly there's more room. So I move my fingers slowly, a soft massage on his upper walls where I know it'll hit the underside of his clit. He reaches his hand down to touch himself from the outside and feels my hand. He moans again, saying some string of words, low and breathy behind the gag, but I can't tell what he's saying. I'm saying, good boy, touch your dick, touch your clit. You feel so good. I love how tight you are. It makes me want to pound you hard, my good boy. And other encouraging, sweet and dirty things like he likes to hear and I like to say. Soon he's coming, muscles squeezing so tight. He's pushing my hand out of him and there's only the tips of two fingers just at his opening. And that's when he ejaculates, squirting, gushing out as I keep my fingers gently moving over his cunt while his fingers frantically rub every contraction out of him. He cries out, then moans, his body shaking a little as the orgasm rolls through him. I leave my fingers touching, but slide them all the way out, gently holding just a little pressure as I lay next to him as he calms. Feminist Erotica is a podcast from Rebellious Magazine for Women, hosted by Jara Brown, Princess McDowell, and Karen Hawkins. If you have an idea for a future episode or want to share your thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. 
Email us at feministerotica at rebelliousmagazine.com. Follow us on Instagram at Feminist Erotica Podcast, on Facebook at Feminist Erotica, and on Twitter at Feminist Erotic. And make sure you subscribe to us wherever you devour podcasts.